Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are ya? And just like that, Peloton has halted making treadmills and bikes, at least temporarily. I felt I needed to lead with that sort of phrasing before getting into the actual episode. I actually hope you don't get that reference. Uh, And don't worry, because one, it's not important, and two, I will explain it before the end of the episode. It's nothing to get hung about. It's just uh, me trying and failing to be cute and clever. But I did want to talk about Peloton, uh, a company that was all the buzz just a couple of years ago, and now a decade after it launched is currently in turmoil. Uh, Big issues at Peloton right now. By the time you hear this episode, maybe that will have changed because things are changing that quickly. I also thought it would be good to use Peloton to talk about a business model that tons of different tech companies have really been trying to leverage 
namely that of finding the way to continuously generate revenue from your customers. Um, there are a lot of different ways of doing that, which I will touch on later in this episode, but that's what we're seeing throughout the tech sphere, and it has been for some time now. It's not brand new. However, let's first start with the history stuff of the company itself. And uh, Peloton's history is actually pretty fascinating, particularly if you do a little digging. Uh, but the oversimplified version, the one that I actually saw in a lot of, I'll be honest, not very well-written articles, is that a guy named John Foley wanted to find a way to help people like himself and his wife, Jill, pursue their passion for fitness and indoor cycling without having to go through all the hassle and expense of finding the right place that has the right classes and the right instructors, and that all this led to the idea of connected fitness devices in the home that could stream workouts and allow you the benefit of having that really great instructor without having to, you know, seek them out, set your schedule to theirs, and pay on a per-class basis. But that's just part of the overall story. See, there were five co-founders of Peloton. Uh, John Foley was just one of them, although by all accounts I come across, Foley was the guy with the idea and the one who sort of brought everything together. So he is critical, crucial to Peloton, but there are four others we should talk about too. And Peloton's history is also one about networking. And I'm not talking about the internet or Wi-Fi or anything like that. Rather, the concept of knowing the right people at the right time to make stuff happen. So the five co-founders of Peloton are John Foley and Tom Cortese, Hisao Kushi, Graham Stanton, and Yanni Fing. And this group has a lot of collective experience in different fields over the course of their respective careers, both in tech and in leadership. So let's do a quick and totally unfair glimpse at each of them. Uh, keeping in mind, this is sort of like the Cliff's Notes of Cliff's Notes about each of the founders. So John Foley, according to what I've read, was a gifted student in school, one of those people who never really had to put forth a ton of effort in their schoolwork. Uh, I was that way for a couple of subjects, but not all of them. He also became enthusiastic about fitness as a teenager. Uh, he particularly got fond of cycling. He attended Georgia Tech, so just down the street from me, and he got a degree in industrial engineering, and then later he earned an MBA at Harvard Business School. Among his various positions that he's held over his career, uh, he served as a production shift manager for Eminem and Mars Candy. Uh, he served as president and CEO of evite.com and later became founder and CEO of a company called pronto.com while also heading up evite and gifts.com. And he would become the CEO of Peloton once we get to that point. Uh, Tom Cortese went to George Washington University, where he earned a bachelor's degree in fine arts, which uh, is not a credential you expect to find in a tech entrepreneur's resume. He worked for a company called Ashoka, which he describes on his LinkedIn page as a business that, quote, connects the most innovative social entrepreneurs around the world, offering critical access to funding, knowledge sharing, and a host of other value-added services, end quote, which kind of sounds like it's a networking company. Uh, later, he became the VP of product management at Pronto, 
which remember John Foley was head of. And uh, he, you know, also he points out in his LinkedIn profile that Pronto is an IAC slash interactive core company. Uh, now, quick aside here, Interactive Core, uh, C-O-R-P, is one of those companies that gobbles up other companies, right? It's a conglomerate. And it all started off as a business that was actually dedicated to expanding the reach of the home shopping network of all things. And it went by a totally different name back then. Now, I'm going to have to do a full episode about the history of IAC because it gets pretty complicated and bonkers. A lot of companies that are related to media companies have truly, you know, gargantuan and confusing histories. Some of the businesses that IAC has owned over the years include Ticketmaster, uh, the television assets of Universal Studios, uh, Expedia, LendingTree, Ask Jeeves was an IAC company, and many more. And as we'll see, IAC is sort of a linchpin for uh, 80% of the co-founders. Okay, so that's Foley and Cortese. Next, we have Hisao Kushi. Uh, he earned a degree in English at the University of Amherst. And you might wonder, what do you do with a BA in English? And if you're Princeton in the Musical Avenue Q, you kind of wander through life aimlessly. But Kushi didn't do that. He pursued a law degree at the Boston College Law School. And he became a lawyer and uh, served as a lawyer for a couple of years in a law firm. And then, and I love this part, he then turned his hand at being a screenwriter for five years. Uh, I'm not sure if any of his work ever made it to an actual screen. I did a search on IMDb and came up blank. Doesn't mean that his work didn't make it. Uh, it may mean that he's uncredited because of, you know, rewrites and things like that. But anyway, he then went on to work for companies like Ticketmaster and then IAC in general and Evite in particular. So there's another connection through IAC. Next, we have Graham Stanton. Uh, he earned degrees in applied mathematics and economics from Harvard University. He worked as a developer for a company called Zero Degrees, which is kind of a was a competitor to LinkedIn. Then he went on to work for, drumroll please, Pronto, you know, one of those IAC companies. And then he held various roles within IAC before being named president of Gifts.com, also under IAC. And rounding out the co-founders, we have Yoni Fing, who received an undergraduate degree in computer engineering and a master's degree in electrical and computer engineering from Georgia Tech. Again, just down the road. Much younger than John Foley, however. Uh, he worked for companies like Cisco and Skype and then had just taken a job with Ticketfly before he would become a Peloton uh, co-founder. So he was the one co-founder who did not work for IAC at some point in his career. However, his former college roommate had worked for IAC. That's where the connection to the others came from, and it's how Fing was, was kind of tapped to come on board with the other co-founders. So, out of the five co-founders, four worked for various companies that were under the IAC domain, uh, and also all but Fing had served as an executive at a company. Three of them had served as C-suite executives, like, you know, chief executive officer or chief operating officer. So in other words, by the time Foley was making his pitch, he was buddy-buddy with several experienced and influential veterans in the business world. Now, that kind of situation does not by any means guarantee that a venture is going to be a success. 
However, it does mean you've got a pretty good foundation to work from. You've got folks who have actual experience, particularly in leadership positions. However, and this is important, none of them in the fields that Peloton was really focusing on. So while they definitely had experience and knowledge, it wasn't necessarily in the specific uh, industry that Peloton was getting into. But anyway, the story goes that Foley came up with the idea for Peloton, that indoor cycling gyms and studios, those were not a new thing. Uh, the Soul Cycle brand had launched in 2006, and we wouldn't get the beginnings of Peloton till 2012. So uh, there was also Flywheel Sports that had uh, launched before Foley had ever pitched the idea of Peloton. Flywheel Sports had also pioneered gamifying indoor cycling workouts by incorporating scoreboards that would show a rider's performance compared to others within that same class. But these were all centralized models. They, they required customers to go to a physical location, a gym or a studio. And obviously that limits the number of people who can actually participate at any given time because rooms have a top capacity and classes can fill up quickly, specifically for popular instructors. So there was a limit to where that business model could go. You could open up more locations but you couldn't magically make a room larger than what it was. Foley's idea was that you could have the exercise equipment, in this case, a stationary bike, and you could incorporate a screen into the design of that bike itself, and the screen would be connected to a home network, and that would allow the user to stream classes so that you know the rider could get the same benefits as if they were attending a spinning class in person, without ever actually having to leave their own home. Classes would not be limited by the physical size of a studio. You probably would still limit the size of classes, but there could be hundreds of people as opposed to maybe a couple of dozen. And you could also record classes, which would give writers the chance to participate in, in a class that's led by their favorite instructor, even if the writer's personal schedule wasn't matching up with the instructor's schedule. So you didn't have to, you know, reshape your life around the, the schedule for workouts. Foley says that he first called up Hizao Kushi, uh, whom he referred to as his very close friend. And Kushi was living in Los Angeles at the time with his family. And initially, Kushi says he thought Foley's idea was ludicrous, that no one would want to take classes over a video screen in the basement of their house on a stationary bike all by themselves. But then, he says, he thought about the quality of the media and how that could define the quality of the experience. That if you were able to recruit, say, the most charismatic and effective instructors to serve on your team, well, then the product sells itself because that's the thing that people are going to latch on to. So he saw Peloton not as an exercise company, but more like a media software company. And that made him more willing to come on board, though he would do so from the comforts of Los Angeles. He didn't move across the United States for this and uh, worked almost as more of a, a consultant in the early days. Foley then pitched his idea to Tom Cortese, who was living in New York City. Cortese had also recently become a fitness enthusiast, and was training for triathlons, among other things. And he came on board right away, although he was planning a trip with his uh, his 
fiance or maybe they had just gotten married. Anyway, he was playing a trip, which put him on hold for a couple of weeks. And there was a very close call that uh, Foley almost hired somebody else to take Cortez's place. But that all got straightened out once he came back. Soon, the other co-founders joined in, and Foley's main job would be to seek out investors in the company, and they got to work putting the pieces together to create the value proposition of Peloton. Now, early on, Foley had thought about creating the service side and not getting so much into the hardware side at all, because hardware is hard. Uh, You have to, you know, design it, you have to engineer it, you have to manufacture it and then ship it to customers. These are all huge expenses, not just in money, but in resources and, and, and you know, time. And it takes a lot of time to go from creating a few bikes to scaling up to mass manufacturing. And that's when you hit the, the point where the cost of individual components starts to come down. Early on, when you're manufacturing, if you're doing small batches, it's more expensive. It, it costs more per component than it will once you get to manufacturing at scale when costs typically come down and you have a better profit margin on a per unit basis. So at first, Foley was actually considering finding a way to partner with existing hardware manufacturers. And he would end up you know, providing the virtual class side of Peloton's business model and the other partners would supply the hardware. However, being a plucky young company with no name in the space meant Foley was hitting a lot of brick walls among the established companies out there. Nothing was really fitting his vision. He also felt that the prevailing stationary bike designs in the industry didn't have the aesthetics that he felt were needed to sell his Peloton idea. So the group decided that making a bike would be a necessary component to Peloton's approach. I'll talk more about the early days of Peloton in just a second, but first let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. 
There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. The decision to make their own bicycle, their own stationary bike, would make things a bazillion times harder in the short run for Peloton, largely because a lot of investors were not interested in backing an unproven company aiming at a yet non-existent market because no one had done this yet. So you couldn't prove that there was a market out there for it. And that this, furthermore, this company was going to be building its own equipment, which again, had no proven success in the marketplace. Like they had never made an exercise bike. Foley said that he, had, he got a lot of no's in those days, but then he also got a lot of people saying, hey, if this ever does become a thing, I want to buy one. I imagine that had to be a pretty frustrating experience to be told, I'm not going to invest in your company idea, but when you finish making it, I want one. Foley was convinced that the bike itself wasn't really as important as the experience was. So he was drawing from his own history of attending spinning classes and gyms. Uh, He said that people would talk about the playlist that was used during the workout or the instructor's approach and attitude and how those things motivated the attendees while they were taking the class. And that was what Foley saw as being the truly valuable component in what he wanted to bring to Peloton, that That meant that they would have to find trainers who would be a good fit for the service. Now, all of this was happening before they had their first actual prototype bike. And it sounds to me like they were really laying the track down as the train was rushing toward them. Uh, That really comes through if you read stories about the first auditions they held for trainers. They put out notices on platforms like Facebook to look for people who would be willing to be part of this great experiment. Apparently, they leased a small office space in New York City, and they hung up a black curtain to section off part of the office space, uh, the curtains purchased from Walmart, according to Foley. And behind the curtain, you had the team, or at least part of the team, with cameras poking through the curtain to capture the audition of trainers who would actually kind of lead a few of the staff in a session. Uh, They did not have a working Peloton bike prototype at this point. And according to every account I've seen, the auditioning trainers had to use a broken stationary bike. They they frequently called it broken or rusted or janky. Uh, The trainers were told that they had to put together a playlist of music and show off how they would conduct an online spinning class and work to the camera, right? To show that they could actually motivate people through a streaming video kind of feed. 
The first trainer that the company hired was Jen Sherman, who really became a celebrity in the Peloton group. Uh, And in an interview with Fortune magazine, Sherman said that uh, they had this little tiny corner of the office that was sectioned off by black velvet curtains. So friggin' shady. That's actually Sherman's quote. However, she soldiered on. She put together a routine and she led John Foley, Tom Cortese, and, and Yoni Feng through a workout. And according to Foley, Sherman was able to get through all the strange limitations of the setting and the audition and show that this idea was not just possible, that it could really take off. And that possibility was really the important component of Peloton's sales pitch to investors. Uh, Stationary bikes were by no means new. In fact, uh, bikes that incorporated, you know, sensors weren't new. There were bikes on the market that had screens that could give riders feedback on stuff like their heart rate or the level of resistance they were currently using, or that could display images of landscapes that the rider was virtually moving through, where the resistance of the bike could change as you encounter a virtual hill and that kind of thing. But creating an interactive media platform, that was the new thing. And to sell that, the trainers were absolutely a pivotal component. Uh, Then you have the name of the company. The group chose, or Foley really chose Peloton, because it is a French term meaning a group of cyclists in a race. Uh, This also reflected the company's goal to create a community of users who would become enthusiastic evangelists for the brand. Foley recognized that spin classes work really well in part because you, you can feed off the energy, not just of the trainer, but your fellow cyclists who are in the class. And he wanted to make sure that the Peloton product would support community, knowing that if it did, users would do a whole lot of the marketing work for the company on their own. It would just be great word of mouth. The co-founders started off with around $400,000 of seed money. 50000 of that was Foley's own cash. And that's when they first launched the company back in 2012. At the end of that first year, Foley and team had managed to raise $3.5 million in Series A funding. Now, that's a pretty nice chunk of change, but when you're talking about a company that's going to produce hardware and software and provide an ongoing stream of produced media content, it's not really that much money. The costs of developing the bike and then manufacturing the bike would be considerable. Early on, the co-founders took their compensation in the form of equity in the company. They didn't draw a salary because they wanted to stretch that money as far as they possibly could. They tapped a designer named Eric Valinci to come up with a 3D model for their bike design. Uh, Yoni Fing worked on creating a back-end system for the bike that would do stuff like track metrics and also allow streaming media content to go to a touchscreen display. So it had to do all this, right? He had to make sure that he created, got a, you know, a processor that would be capable of handling these different uh, tasks simultaneously without being overloaded. And then they worked toward building a bike for realsies. In 2013, the team launched a Kickstarter campaign, and this served many purposes. Uh, It was, of course, a crowdfunded campaign, and it was partly there just to raise more money, but it was also a means to advertise the concept of the Peloton bike to a wider audience and to get buy-in from customers, to create that core group of fans. And you got to remember, the word fan is a shortened word 
uh, for fanatic. And a lot of writers will use words like fanatic or cult when they're describing the Peloton user base. Anyway, the video for the Kickstarter campaign showed off the prototype version of the Peloton bike. And it turns out that the actual prototype that was shown in the video had some pretty serious problems. Uh, Namely, it was unstable and wobbly, like really wobbly. So they made sure to avoid showing it wobble in the video. They showed it stationary, like truly stationary, no one using it or anything. Uh, And this was a marketing effort, right? Like they had to do that because if they showed it wobble, then that would never work. Uh, They also were able to get their manufacturer to change their approach and uh, reinforce the legs on the bike so that it would no longer wobble. And it was a, a pretty simple stationary bike design. It wasn't super, you know, complicated. It had a very large touchscreen display mounted in front of the handlebars. Uh, That screen, according to the campaign, was a 21 and a half inch 1080p resolution LED display. Uh, The display connected to a circuit board that had a one and a half gigahertz dual core processor from Texas Instruments inside it. It also incorporated a forward facing camera and a microphone. So not only could you watch a class streaming to you, the class could see and watch you. Uh, This is the part I like to call the nightmare of Peloton, or at least Jonathan's personal nightmare, as I am certain that I do not want anyone looking at me when I work out. But then I'll be honest, that's been kind of a moot point for two years and going now, because I haven't worked out in two years. Uh, So eh, I guess I don't need to worry about it. Users would be able to connect the bike to a Wi-Fi network, Obviously, you would need to in order to be able to receive streaming content. Uh, The bike also supported Bluetooth tech, so you could connect your own wireless headphones or speakers to it, the bike. It also had the ability to connect uh, wireless heart rate monitors to the bike so that you could trace that metric. For the bike itself, the pedals connected to the resistance wheel via a belt rather than a chain. This helped make it... uh, operate much more quietly than a chain-based stationary bike. And instead of using brakes to create resistance, the Kickstarter campaign explained that Peloton would use magnetic resistance. So magnets positioned near the flywheel, the the wheel that turns through the belt uh, connection to the pedals, uh, magnets would end up creating resistance, right? You have a magnetic force where the magnets are technically pulling on the flywheel, and that requires the user to overcome that force in order to make the wheel turn. And a resistance knob gave the rider control of how close or far away the magnets would be from the flywheel. So the closer the magnets were to the flywheel, the stronger the magnetic pull would be, and the harder it would be to pedal the bicycle. Uh, A later upgraded version of the Peloton bike, the Bike Plus, would include digital controls for the magnetic resistance. And in fact, users could set their bikes to mimic the resistance used by the instructor so that as the instructor was adjusting the resistance of their own bicycle, then the user's bike would follow suit. And that way, the user would never have to be conscious of this or make the changes themselves. Their bike would just do it automatically. And they could focus rather on not dying while they keep up with a professional instructor. The video showed off that the bike would allow users to take online classes uh, and they could find, you know, trainers that they really connected with. And they could take live classes 
uh, along with hundreds of other people at the same time, or they could scan through recorded workouts from past sessions and take those instead. And the workouts would include music and motivation from the trainers uh, who were kind of positioned almost like celebrities. In fact, many of them would essentially attain celebrity status, at least within the Peloton community. Uh, some of, some of them would actually be celebrities in their own right, like professional cyclists who had, uh, participated in like Tour de France, for example. The display would show users stats about their workouts, including information about specific sessions and accumulative data that would gather throughout multiple sessions and users could earn achievements, uh, by attending classes and performing well, this would mimic a pretty successful strategy we've seen in the video game industry. Achievements really drive engagement there. That was the same reason Peloton used them in their model. The Kickstarter campaign had a goal of $250,000, and it actually raised more than $300,000. Now, that is less than the seed money that the group had used to launch the company in the first place back in 2012, but it was also enough support to show investors that there was a demand for this product. Uh, that, I think, might be the real purpose of this Kickstarter campaign. The campaign said the money was actually going to be used to officially start Peloton production. Like, this was the, the cash needed to get that ball rolling, to get the tools designed to produce the bikes and to get the production uh, system in place and all that. Like this was the actual money to start that. They were upfront that they had already raised investments to fund a studio in New York where trainers could lead classes and they had already actually developed all the hardware and software and that, you know, the initial investment money covered all that. But again, I suspect the campaign's real purpose was to test the idea among the public and get some grassroots enthusiasm for it so that folks with deeper pockets, meaning investors, would see this kind of enthusiasm and say, yes, I will invest in this because I see that there is a demand for the product. Now, uh, that $300,000, or, or to be more specific, that $307,332 came from just 297 backers. That would mean that the average amount of money that backers spent on that campaign was in excess of $1,000 each. And that makes sense when you look at the rewards, because you would see that to qualify for the early bird special of receiving a Peloton bike, you would need to plunk down $1,500 cash. The early bird special was limited to just 250 backers, and it, did, it didn't sell out. Uh, though at least five folks backed at the next level up anyway. That was at $1,700 for a Peloton bike. Maybe it maxed out initially and then people backed out of it before the campaign ended. That's possible. Where they got 250 people to sign up and then before the campaign ended, some of those 250 people said, you know what, uh, never mind, and backed out. That's possible. Uh and then a few people backed at slightly higher levels. Uh, and, and these were all like the $1,500 and $1,700 levels. Those were just for if you were in the United States. Folks overseas would actually have to back at a higher level because the bike would have to be, quote, equipped for Canadian, European, or Asian product standards, end quote. We don't believe in their standards here in the U.S. of A. Well, the campaign made it clear that the manufacturing of the bikes would happen overseas and that Peloton had partnered with a company that had a history of making indoor cycles, 
and a second company that creates ODM tablet hardware. ODM stands for Original Design Manufacturer. Essentially, this is a company that produces the stuff that another company designs. So if you ran a design company, you would come up with a design for a tablet, you would partner with an ODM, and they would actually produce the hardware. This works great for companies that don't have fabrication facilities of their own. Now, the results of the campaign weren't exactly a windfall for Peloton. Like, they, they hit their goal, but it wasn't a runaway success like some other viral campaigns we've seen on Kickstarter. In fact, in all, 188 people had ordered a bike. So it wasn't, it wasn't the, the runaway success they were hoping for, and they realized that they were going to have to start getting these bikes in front of people in order to sell more of them, to get people to see what the, the promise and premise of the bike were all about. So then the company secured a pop-up store location in a mall in New Jersey, and things would really get moving for the stationary bike company. I'll explain more after we come back from this break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. 
Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Okay, so Peloton's had its Kickstarter campaign, which was a, a modest success. I mean, it successfully funded, but it wasn't, you know, a grand slam home run. And then they look for a physical space where they can show off the bikes and perhaps get a little more traction, which again, using these metaphors for a company that was making stationary bikes is an irony that is not lost upon me. So they went to this luxury mall in New Jersey. Uh, It's exactly the kind of mall that I really hate going to. We have something similar here in Atlanta, and it's pretty much the opposite of the kind of place I want to spend time in. But it is the kind of place that you would want to to be at if you're trying to sell a high-end piece of exercise equipment to well-off suburbanites who may not have access to gym locations in their area because they live in a suburb. By late 2013, the team was demonstrating the bike and selling orders for around five bikes a day. And they had considered if they could get one order a day, that would be a success. So they were actually exceeding what they were hoping for. Uh, However, they could not produce five bikes a day. Their manufacturer in Taiwan had a turnaround time that was between three to four months. Now, early on, they promised customers that they would deliver the bikes within 30 days and then, you know, kind of hope that the customers wouldn't get too cheesed off when inevitably there would be delays. And they knew there would be delays from the start. They actually said later on that, they realized that if they had just told people up front, it'll be 90 to 120 days before this can be delivered, there would have been a lot less you know, friction. Meanwhile, Feng was in charge of building out a production studio in New York where the classes were going to take place. But no one on the team had any experience creating a production studio. Uh, so it was kind of a trial by fire, as was everything else, it seems, with Peloton. The first bikes were finally reaching customers by January 2014. At that time, the New York studio had not yet been finished, so the initial classes for those first customers were conducted in that little curtained-off section of office space in the studio. The actual, uh, the full production studio wouldn't open in Chelsea, New York until May 2014. The company also had to create their own logistics department to handle things like delivery of the product because they found that they had been dependent on third parties and those third parties were, uh, let's say that those third parties were not living up to the standards of your average Peloton customer. It's a kind way of putting it. And this is where we should remember that a Peloton bike is really freaking expensive. In 2014, a Peloton bike would set you back $1,995. This was the original basic Peloton bike, and that's for the hardware. You have to remember that the real selling point of the Peloton were those streaming classes, and that service would cost you $39 a month. So you'd be spending nearly two grand on the bike and then 40 bucks a month to continue getting useful content while you're using that bike. And that's the business model that I really wanted to touch on this ongoing subscription fee. And we've seen this model become incredibly popular among tech companies. And really, 
what it really boils down to, it's all about getting the customer into an ecosystem and then capitalizing on that. And you see this everywhere. Uh, Printers do it more often than not. uh, If you buy a printer, you are required to purchase toner cartridges from the same manufacturing company that made the printer. You are discouraged or sometimes outright prevented from using third-party toner cartridges. Uh, We see it in coffee makers. Keurig famously tried to block customers so that they would only be able to use Keurig-produced coffee pods with their Keurig coffee makers. Uh, We've seen it in game companies like Microsoft Gaming, which has its Xbox Game Pass service. This is a service that people will pay a monthly subscription to, and in return, they get access to the games currently uh, supported by the service, and games come on and leave the service over time. We see it in companies that push back against the right to repair. These are companies that want to lock customers into a system where they have to go to a company-approved and licensed vendor for maintenance and repair. Uh, We've seen it in the form of planned obsolescence, in which a company's product is designed to only last a certain amount of time before the customer has to go out and buy a replacement. These are all aspects of the same basic business philosophy, which is to find a way to keep your customers giving you their money rather than having a one-and-done approach where someone comes up, they buy your product, the transaction's over, and that's it. And the only way you make more money is to sell more products to more customers. This is a way to keep a customer as a recurring customer. Well, all of that is pretty much a, a, a steep asking price, right? Two grand plus 40 bucks a month for perpetually. Uh, this meant that Peloton's clientele typically were among the more affluent people in society. And some of the Peloton's equipment would cost even more. Like there were the Peloton Bike Plus, which was marketed for $2,495, as was the Peloton Tread Treadmill. I think the Tread Plus was topping out at just under $5,000. So very expensive pieces of equipment. Anyway, Peloton, unlike its bikes, which are stationary, was moving forward. In 2014, the company raised another $10.5 million in funding. The following year, the company raised another $30 million, at least early in the year. And then, uh, you know, on the back end of the year, they earned another $75 million. And Peloton was using this money to build out more brick-and-mortar locations to show off the bikes and also to build out that logistics department I talked about and to grow the software engineering team as well. And that wasn't the end of the investments. Peloton got another $325 million in 2016. The company established its products as being trendy, if somewhat restricted to a wealthy subset of the population. And in 2019, the company held its initial public offering. That's when a private company transitions into a publicly traded company. Uh, The first day did not go particularly smoothly. The IPO pricing was set at $29 per share, meaning that Peloton expected that shares of the company would trade at $29 a piece once the market opened. However, when trading began, it was actually dropped down to $27. Still, it would mean that the company would establish a $7.2 billion market valuation. Essentially, uh, the valuation is the number of shares that the company issues multiplied by the price per share. The little slip 
from $29 to $27 meant that Peloton got the dubious distinction of having the, quote, second worst debut of a unicorn, end quote, up to that point in 2019. That's according to CNBC. A unicorn is a startup business that has a valuation of a billion dollars or more. Now, all that being said, I think a lot of folks in the tech space were actually at the time far more focused on the spiraling We company, uh, the company behind WeWork. That was supposed to go public the week before Peloton, but ended up scrapping those plans because of uh, lots of valid and crazy reasons, but that's another story. Now, it's possible Peloton would have been on a steady but slow trajectory, except then we get to the pandemic in early 2020. With the threat of coronavirus out there, a lot of people were lamenting the fact that they did not feel safe going to the gym. And heck, a lot of places, gyms were closed, right? So you couldn't go even if you wanted to. And that showed off the real benefit of Peloton, right? Like, you don't have to go to the gym. You get one of those expensive Peloton machines, whether it's a bike or it's a treadmill, and you take classes at home. Now, you still get the benefit of a professional trainer pushing you to your limit, but you don't have to leave the house. And Peloton sales took off, as did the company's stock price. Uh, there were some pretty big setbacks, too, though. Uh, for one, in May 2021, the company issued a recall for the most recent Tread and Tread Plus treadmill models due to reports of users getting injured on the devices, as well as a truly tragic report that a child had died in an accident involving one of the treadmills. And that obviously was a huge issue for the company. They had to react quickly to it, and that's why they recalled those, those products. Uh, when HBO launched its follow-up series to Sex and the City, called And Just Like That, the show began with the character of Mr. Big dying of a heart attack after having worked out on his Peloton bike. Now, that's not the kind of product placement you typically want when you're promoting your business. And to make matters worse, Peloton commissioned an ad featuring Chris Noth, the actor who plays or played Mr. Big, to kind of play off the fact that the show had killed off his character and implied that Peloton was responsible. And the reason I say to make matters worse is because shortly after that ad started to air, the world heard allegations that Chris Noth had a history of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Uh, and obviously, it would be a terrible idea to continue to run an ad featuring Noth in it in the wake of those allegations. So the company pulled the commercial. Uh, and I told you I would explain the and just like that thing at the beginning of this episode. And there it is. Was it worth the wait? It was not. Mr. Big was not the only fictional character to have a fictional heart attack after working out on a Peloton bike. The Showtime series Billions featured a scene in which a character named Wags has a heart attack after following a similar workout on a Peloton. Wags, however, does not die from the heart attack. He even references the scene from And Just Like That. He references Mr. Big. I'm sensing a meme here. Now, before the pandemic... Peloton's stock price was in the $22 to $35 range. So, you know, leading into 2020, that's kind of where the, the stock price was hovering. It was not too far off from the targeted IPO price of $29 way back when the company first went public. But the pandemic 
would change things significantly. In early March of 2020, the price had actually fallen to below $20 per share. But by October of 2020, after several months of the pandemic, the stock price had skyrocketed up to $131 per share. Now, that's not its peak. The peak of Peloton's stock price went to more than $160 per share, a huge jump. Peloton's pandemic trend of selling more equipment, however, was not sustainable, and the stock price would ultimately reflect that. For example, in November 2020, as the world was anticipating the production of a viable COVID-19 vaccine, like we had just heard the announcement that, yes, they were going to be produced and we would get access to them early on in 2021, Peloton stock then took a dive. It fell 25% because investors were worried that people would, you know, stop buying Peloton bikes and treadmills and just head back to the gym. So it's weird to think that a uh, a solution or a, a way to combat the spread of coronavirus would have a harmful effect on the company, but there you go. Now, Peloton's stock price did have a brief recovery, but it wouldn't stay north of $100 per share for very long. Uh, the recalls in 2021 came at a time when the stock was in a slide, and it would slide 76% in value, according to Slate. As I actually record this episode, the company's current stock price is around $29 per share, right back to that target IPO price and well below that height of $162 per share. That's what it was at in December of 2020. Peloton reportedly overestimated demand for the bikes and treadmills, largely because of that huge boom early on in the pandemic. And now... Apparently, the company has warehouses filled with equipment that has so far gone unsold. As such, someone within Peloton not too long ago leaked out information that the company was halting, at least temporarily, the production of its various machines. Some, like the basic Peloton bike, are on hold from February through March, while the Bike Plus will be on hold through June, and the Tread Plus treadmill is not going back into production for the rest of fiscal year 2022. The company's stock price took another huge tumble in the wake of that news, uh, nearly 25%. But John Foley then said that the company was making moves to right itself, which saw the stock price rebound a little bit. And that process of making things right may actually include layoffs in addition to changes in production. Uh, also, the company said that it had identified who had leaked the information to the media in the first place and was now pursuing legal action, which is a big old yikes. Meanwhile, the Blackwell's Capital LLC company, that's an activist investor group, has published an open letter urging Peloton to fire John Foley as CEO and to seek out a buyer for the company, which is a big old oof right there. Um, and uh, Blackwell's owns about 5% of Peloton stock, so it's influential, but obviously doesn't have like controlling interest of the company by any stretch of the imagination. But it does sound like they are pushing other shareholders to pressure the company into, into firing John Foley and, and looking to get bought out. Um, again, it's an interesting story with Peloton, and obviously the story's not over. Like, we could see things dramatically turn around for the company and see that this was just a dark 
period in the company's history. And then it returns to a, a pretty prominent place in the tech space. It's interesting to me because obviously the the real value in Peloton wasn't so much in the technology. As I said, all the technology Peloton was using existed in some form or another, uh, just it had not yet converged into a product like what Peloton offered. But uh, but they did it really well. I mean, apart from the fact that it's prohibitively expensive for a large portion of the population. Uh, obviously, that ends up limiting your potential customer base all on its own, right? You only have so many people who can afford to buy products that are that expensive. But uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if the company is going to be able to weather this current storm and turn things around. I wanted to cover it because it has been in the news, and I thought it was interesting that the company had announced it, or didn't announce, but had to address the fact that it was halting production on several of its, all of its products, really, at least in for a temporary basis. Anyway, that is the Peloton story so far. And like I said, unless uh, unless something really major happens, I expect that story will continue. If it doesn't, I'll be sure to touch on that at the end of this year when I'm covering the big stories of 2022. In the meantime, if you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, please reach out to me. The best way to do that is on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, 
It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 